This morning, people of God, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 32, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 637. We'll be reading Psalm 32 and then looking briefly this morning upon our text, verses 1 and 2 from that psalm. So we read together from the inspired Word of God that we believe is authoritative of our doctrine and our life this morning from Psalm 32. Hear now the Word of God. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And again, it's to verses 1 and 2 that we turn our attention this morning. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the reformer John Calvin comments on Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2 as follows, stating, The happiness of men consists only in the free forgiveness of sins. For nothing can be more terrible than to have God for our enemy. The happiness, the blessedness, the sense of spiritual peace is bound up with the reality of the forgiveness of sins. Because when there and if there is the forgiveness of sins, then there is reconciliation with God. Then we can honestly say on the authority of God's own revelation that God is our friend, not in some light, superficial type of a way, but the friendship of a covenantal relationship. A covenantal relationship that brings all of the benefits of a full salvation, including spiritual joy in this life and also in the life to come. But if there is not forgiveness of sins... If there is not forgiveness of sins, then God is our enemy. And if God is our enemy, uh, what peace and what happiness and what blessedness can a person find in this life? Or what peace and what enjoyment can they anticipate for the life to come? And so you see that everything rests upon 
this truth. Am I right with God? Are my sins forgiven? And the word comes this morning, and it is supported or confirmed by the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and the testimony to the person who sincerely exercises faith is yes, your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is dealt with. God is your friend. You have peace. You have reason for joy. And so in the time allotted to us this morning, uh, let us briefly look at our theme, the blessed reality of forgiveness, noticing first of all the context for this blessed reality, and then secondly, the basis for this blessed reality, and then thirdly, the condition in this blessed reality. So Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2, David, in his own experience, but of course by the authority that is granted him as he writes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks something of the blessed reality of forgiveness. And he does so noticing, first of all, the context, then the basis, and then thirdly, the condition in this blessed reality. The context, Psalm 32 is written initially in a specific situation that David had gone through. As a sincere child of God, as one who had exercised faith from his earliest days, but nevertheless one who had fallen into serious sin with Bathsheba, and also then multiplied the severity of that sin with his wicked actions against Uriah. And just notice then that the context after a time in which he had denied his sin, hidden his sin, excused himself for his sin, David now by the work of the Holy Spirit and also through the prophet Nathan has come to a sincere confession of his sin. He speaks about the time in which he kept silent and of the internal spiritual anguish that that silence had caused him. But now he's no longer silent. He has come to confess his sins. And notice that he uses a variety of words, even in the opening verse. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And then in verse 2, there's also the use of the word iniquity. Now, all of these are close in meaning, but each has their own different shade of meaning. And each one, as they give a different shade of meaning, shows us something uh, of what sin or what iniquity or what transgressions are. David comes, and in this act of confession, he agrees with the verdict of God. He says the same thing as God's Word. That's what confession is. And he acknowledges his acts of sin, that is, moral actions or immoral actions that have missed the mark of God's law. David acknowledges that his actions with Bathsheba missed the mark of God's law. God's Word says you shall not commit adultery. David had committed adultery. And now he comes and he agrees with God's Word and he acknowledges that his actions missed the mark of God's requirement. God's law says you shall not murder. David had murdered Bathsheba's husband. He had denied the guilt for a time, but now he comes and he confesses his sin. He agrees with the verdict of God's Word. He uses also 
the word transgression because by his acts of sin, transgression means that he had broken, that he had breached the relationship that he had with God. He had been called to be a child of God. He had been called to live a life of fellowship with God. But by his sinful actions that had missed the mark of God's law, David had violated that relationship. You might say from his side of things, he had broken that covenant relationship. And he uses also the word iniquity, a word which means a crooked and perverse, a twisted behavior. David had not conducted himself as was fitting for the king of Israel, but for the child of God. And now our circumstances, no doubt, are different. And yet Psalm 130, verse 3, shows the universal applicability of David's situation. Psalm 130, verse 3 says as follows, If you, O Lord, should begin to mark iniquities, who of us could stand? And so although the circumstances are different, the predicament is the same. The context is the same. And so this morning as we come into the presence of God for worship, we have to acknowledge by way of confession of sin that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And congregation, this is a necessary exercise for us to be continually engaged in the exercise of repentance. 1 John 1, verse 8 and 9, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as you continue to live the Christian life, but also this morning, even as you receive the elements of the Lord's Supper, do so confessing your sins. We do not come to the table of the Lord to testify that we are perfect in and of ourselves, but rather we come acknowledging that we are the ones who have sinned, that we are the ones who have committed transgressions, that we are the ones who are guilty of iniquities. But that's the paradox of the gospel, Even as we come confessing those things, that is the necessary requirement to experience the blessed reality of the forgiveness of sins. And so as we transition into our second point, I just want to directly ask you this morning, are you personally familiar with the exercise of repentance? At some level, do you know what it is before the face of God Almighty to say, Lord, I have sinned. I have transgressed. I have committed iniquity. If so, then follow me into the second point, the basis for this blessed reality. And the basis is a substitutionary forgiveness and a substitutionary covering. David says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Notice, first of all, the word forgiven. As it's used here, a literal translation would be lifted up. In the sense of a heavy burden placed upon one, 
that is now lifted off of one. You might think, uh, those of you who perhaps are, are older or uh, familiar with uh, history, uh, of a yoke used to carry a large pails, heavy. Uh, I remember, and maybe I've shared this with you before, uh, when I was uh, a young boy, one of my jobs on the farm was to water the chickens, a five-gallon bucket full of water. And being a, a quite young lad, I could hardly, hardly lift the bucket of water. And I had all sorts of tactics to try to get away with it. You know, I'd take two five-gallon buckets and only put a little in each one, try to balance it out, trip after trip. But it was a wonderful experience for me in doing of chores when Grandpa would come along. Because then he could fill that five-gallon bucket as full as it needed to be. And with the strength of a grandfather, he could lift that bucket that I could not even begin to lift. And he could lift it over the, the, the pen. And he could carry it right to the waterer. And, and none was spilled. And there was no struggle. It was with absolute ease that he carried that burden that I, as a youngster, could hardly even begin to move. Now, at an infinitely greater level... Christian, that's what this word means, that the burden that you and I are not able to lift, not able to carry, not able to deal with, God in His grace and God in His mercy has lifted up the guilt of that iniquity, the guilt of that sin, the guilt of that transgression, has taken it off from the Christian and has placed it on someone else, more specifically the person of Jesus Christ. His Son, our Savior. And that, Christian, this morning ought to be reason enough for us to rejoice and to be glad and say, yes, indeed, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Because David had experienced something of the crushing weight of guilt. But now he also experienced, by the grace and by the mercy of God, the wonderful deliverance and the sense of freedom that he experienced knowing that the guilt that he could not bear had been borne by another. And that's also what we testified as you see the elements. As you look upon the wine, think of the blood. Not your blood that was shed for the remission of sins, but the blood of another that was shed for the remission of sins. And as you see the bread broken, think of a body being broken underneath the wages of sin. Not your body, not my body, but the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so that David could write Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Isaiah 53, verse 4, He shall bear their iniquities. And the he there in Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would pastorally encourage you as you, as you receive the wine and as you hold the bread, think, he shall bear their iniquities. Satisfying, removing, once and for all definitively dealing with the guilt of our iniquities doing so by way of a substitutionary covering. Notice there in the second or the third stanza, line of verse 1, whose sin is covered. Not covered in the sense of trying to hide, 
I don't know, boys and girls, if you've ever had it, where you broke something of your mother's that you shouldn't have broke. You know, sometimes, maybe especially boys, but girls too. I can remember doing this. You know, mom would be gone, maybe dad would be outside, and in the house all of a sudden, you and your brother begin to throw a ball around, which makes absolutely no sense, but you do it anyways. And uh, maybe you've had it, you know, you, you throw and your brother doesn't catch it right and a picture frame is broken or a glass gets broken. And you think, oh boy, let's quick hide this. Well, let's put it in the trash can, but not on the top where mom might find it. Let, let's, let's put it way in the middle. You try to conceal it. That's not what this word means. It doesn't mean to hide our sins. God is all-knowing. But what this word rather means is to cover in the sins that God's justice looks down upon us and sees the satisfying blood of His Son. Theologically, this word covering ties back to the Day of Atonement when the blood of the sacrificial lamb would be brought into the holiest of holies and sprinkled upon the mercy seat. So that when God in His perfect holiness looked down upon the Ark of the Covenant that symbolized His unique relationship and presence with His people, and in that Ark of the Covenant, among other items, there were the tablets of stone, the moral commands, the moral commands that David acknowledges that he had violated and broken. So the question is, how can a holy God looking upon these moral demands dwell with us? And the answer is that there was blood. There was blood between the holy God and the moral demands that we have not perfectly kept. So that when God in His judicial position as the lawgiver and as the judge of humanity looks down upon us as we are in Christ by faith, He does not judicially see our sins, but He sees the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, blessed is the boy, blessed is the girl whose sins are covered. And I want to stress this morning there's only one thing that can cover sin, and it's blood. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. And you'll see that represented to you this morning as the wine is poured out. And as the wine is distributed, and as you receive that wine, think that there is blood upon the mercy seat covering your sins. This is the only but sure basis for the blessed reality of forgiveness, the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But notice also that these two verses give a condition in this blessed reality. And here we look at the last phrase there in verse 2, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The phrase no deceit indicates a genuineness. To state it negatively, no deceit means that there is not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy comes from a word which means to put on a mask. To put on something externally to cover that which is internal. 
And there is a real grave danger to spiritual hypocrisy, to spiritual deceit, to live a double life, to appear one way in public, maybe to appear one way in the presence of the congregation, but then in private, to live a life that is contradictory. And David had done this for a number of months. There he was, the king of Israel, an adulterer and a murderer. But now he has come underneath the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to confess his sins. He's broken by the words of Nathan. He acknowledges his wrongdoing. But he says, the one in whom there is no deceit, there is forgiveness for that person. Now I want to be clear, the forgiveness is not based upon what the person does in a meritorious sense. It's not as if, we, if we're honest with God that then he forgives us our sins on the merit of our honesty. Nor is the merit our own actions. But the idea is this, that this spiritual honesty of exercising genuine repentance and faith is the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit and the evidence of grace in our heart. Faith and repentance must always be distinguished from each other, but never separated from each other. And so the evidence of faith, you could say, is repentance, and the evidence of repentance is faith. And so faith receives the Lord Jesus Christ and all of its benefits, but the faith that receives Jesus Christ and all of his benefits is also the faith that is exercised in the way of genuine repentance. And this is the way not only to receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper with spiritual integrity and honesty, confessing sins, but also professing faith, but this is the way to live. This is the way to live the Christian life with a certain spiritual honesty before God. To say, Lord, I have sinned by committing transgressions and iniquities. I confess my sins. And I look to the Lord Jesus Christ to remove the guilt of my sin and to cover the reality of my transgressions. And knowing then the perfect, satisfactory work of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is then the experience of a most wonderful blessedness. Because again, to end as we began, John Calvin commenting upon this text, the happiness of men consists only in the free forgiveness of sins. For nothing can be more terrible than to have God for our enemy. And I would just add this, nothing is more wonderful than to have God as our friend. Amen.